The psalm for this morning is uh, Psalm 42, and we're reading from verse 1 to verse 5. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. And we're also going to read in Philippians 4. Uh, verses 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts (coughs) and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Thank you, Elva. I discovered uh, the other day that the uh, Guinness Book of Records uh, includes a record for the longest sermon ever. Uh, And the record stands apparently at 53 hours and 18 minutes. Well, that that is going to be soundly beaten today (laughs) because this sermon started on January the 5th 2020, and um, I got halfway through it and ran out of time and decided this was the time to to stop. So um, you're entering the the very last bit of a two-year-long sermon, and I hope you enjoy it. Happy New Year, or rejoice in the Lord, whatever. Just let me do a brief recap of the the first half of the sermon, which took almost two years. Psalm 42 and 43 go together as one psalm, and there are three main elements in it. There's the reality that life is a struggle. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? Then the second element is looking back longingly at the past. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. And the third element Determination to trust God, come what may. And this is a repeated refrain in the 
two psalms. Put your hope in God, talking to himself. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. And we notice the way in which the ups and downs of these two psalms alternate right through, rather than progress steadily from depression or difficulty until we're on a higher plane of victory and um, happiness. Rather than moving in a clean line from a doubt to faith or from despair to hope, the situation seems to be more a matter of lurching uh, two steps forward and one step back, or even one step forward and two steps back. So we ask, why the structure of the psalm in this way, rather than this nice progress from doubt to faith? And we concluded that the psalmist was too much of a realist to come up with a neat package. He's not interested in describing an unreal experience. He tells it like it is. In other words, this is life. It's messy. God is there all the time. We have to find our joy in him in the middle of it all. And we can. Now, can I justify that last bit? We can. I hope we can because we've all sung about it um, and said that we could just, just now in that very well-chosen song. Thank you, Kate. We sang, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy. All my days, yes, I will. So I want to wrestle with this question for a few minutes as we begin a new year. Uh, a year that threatens rather ominously to be as difficult, uh, as difficult as the unusually difficult last two years. And the question is, is joy simply dependent on our circumstances? The best example of uh, a change of emotion with a change of circumstances I could think of came straight to my, my brain as I was thinking about this. Do you, do you, uh, some of you will remember, I'm sure, uh, the letter from the boy at Camp Granada. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining and they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. Do you remember this? Who, who remembers? What? I'll sing it for you. <laughs> and, and, uh, we, it is sung, but now I don't want this to scare you, but my bunkmate has malaria. You remember Geoffrey Hardy? They're about to organise a searching party. Take me home, oh mother, father. Take me home, I hate Granada. Don't leave me out in the forest where I might get eaten by a bear. Take me home, I promise I will not make a noise or mess the house with other boys. Oh, please don't make me stay. I've been here one whole day. <laughs> and then you get, wait a minute, it stopped hailing. Guys are swimming, guys are sailing. Playing baseball, gee, that's better. Mother, father, kindly disregard this letter. Well, last Sunday, Pete got us to share uh, reflections on the past year of COVID lockdown. And we reflected on the positives as well as the negatives. Pete helped us to identify ways in which God had shown up 
sometimes in unexpected ways in the middle of it all. And I'd like to take that just a little bit further now. We've been getting Christmas letters. We get less and less in the mail every year and more, more by email. But two that came in the mail started like this. The first one, opening sentence. A very memorable but not enjoyable year. The next one, opening sentence, COVID has prompted me to think of the challenges my parents' generation endured. And then he outlines World War I and the Spanish flu and the Great Depression and the polio e epidemic and World War II. And he says, the interesting thing is, I don't ever remember them complaining. So back to the question, can we genuinely rejoice in the midst of our difficulties? Or is rejoicing something we can only look forward to when our troubles are over? Well, what does rejoicing look like in, in the Bible? There are at least four uses of the word, I decided, and this is all with the wonderful help of um, Bible Gateway. If you go in and put in rejoice, bingo, it tells you there's 254 occurrences or whatever, and, and you get a lot of help. It seemed to me they fell into four categories. One was narrative, that is telling the story. They rejoiced, often in times of trouble. Then there's a prediction. You are going to find yourself rejoicing, something to look forward to in the future, which is great. And then as a command, you will rejoice. It's a bit funny, isn't it? You will rejoice. And then as an exhortation, let us rejoice. Lots of them, and we heard a couple of them this morning. Just quickly looking at these in a bit more detail. Narrative. Here's a couple of examples. 2 Corinthians 8.6. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And I think of... Uh, being in Burkina Faso, where my sister was a missionary for many years, and um, being overwhelmed by the generosity of these people who were so poor was, was quite embarrassing to me. Everybody wanted to give me a, a chicken or, or a, um, a, a tin of honey full of bees' wings and, and sticks, but that's what it was like. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to miss the point that joy is not limited to the good times. It's not about fun. Far from it, over and over again, we find that joy not only survives the bad times, but it sustains us and even grows in the midst of difficulties and troubles. Looking at the predictive sense, Isaiah 29:19 is an example. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. There are good things ahead. And most wonderfully, in the words of Jesus in John 16, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. 
Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Then as a command, and this, this does seem a bit strange, I think, doesn't it? Leviticus 23, 46. You are to rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days, <laughs> not just for a few minutes, you know, before breakfast or something. For seven days, you are to rejoice. Um, th this occurs in um, Deuteronomy eight times. The first seven instances are in the form of a command. For example, in chapter 12, verse 7, there in the presence of the Lord, you and your families shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. Now, finally, as exhortation, Psalm 118, 24, let us rejoice and be glad. Very simple exhortation. James 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy. I beg your pardon? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Not because we're masochists who just love suffering, but because you know, he says, that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Philippians, many uh, instances. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Ian Blakelock um, says about that, the phrase in the Lord, when he says rejoice in the Lord always, the phrase in the Lord leads the exhortation beyond all events and circumstances, above all lower reasons for joy, and places it at the source of all final happiness, God himself. Now, the New Bible Dictionary, which was uh, new when I bought it in 1960, uh, says in both the Old and New Testaments, joy is consistently the mark both individually of the believer and corporately of the church. It is a quality and not simply an emotion grounded upon God himself and indeed derived from him which characterises the Christian's life on earth. Joy is something that runs very deep. Indeed, it's one of the fruits of the spirit. If it makes sense to command and exhort the faithful to rejoice, then it follows that we can choose to rejoice. Indeed, that we should choose to rejoice. In fact, this is what we're finding in scripture. People determined to rejoice. This is about intention. I am going to do this. Decision. I'm decided that this is the way I'm going to be. It's determination to rejoice. Is that just wishful thinking? Is it realistic to expect us to commit ourselves to rejoicing in God, whatever happens? 
Well, we do something a little bit similar when we get married in the traditional wedding vows say, I, Joe Blow, take the Jill Blow to be, I suppose, to be my wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. So we're promising, uh, we're making a commitment of, uh, uh, that will survive anything that happens because we're determined that it should be so. And if we can make such a determination for someone we love, how much more should we do it for our Lord and Saviour? Psalm 43 does in fact finish with joy. For all the fluctuations throughout Psalms 42 and 43, the psalmist does begin with complaint and finish on a note of joy. Not that he has arrived at last at the place of joy, but that he has recalled the hidden reality of God, that he is there and that God knows all about his troubles. The last verse is an expression of determination to rejoice. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Commenting on, on this verse, Old Testament scholar Derek Kidness says, so the chief refrain, as it appears for the third time, can take up the brave words of verses 5 and 11 with a different tone, confident rather than doggedly defiant. Homeward bound or not, the poet can praise God with exceeding joy. Outwardly, nothing has changed, but he has won through. I love this expression of determination to rejoice in the prophet Habakkuk, however you pronounce it. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Well, that's a, that's a pastoral version, and I could relate to that as somebody who was enduring drought on a farm reminded me of it once. Today's version might uh, sound something like this, perhaps. Though the COVID-19 pandemic should increase and touch even my family and closest friends, though I lose my job and accept unemployment benefits or have to close my business, Though I'd be isolated from my nearest and dearest and even end up in ICU. Though COVID rules limit my freedom and my holiday plans have to be abandoned. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. There are just 104 verses in Philippians. And there are five occurrences of joy and six occurrences of rejoice. Philippians has been called the epistle of joy. Under what circumstances was it written then? Well, 
in indefinite detention. Paul was in prison, not for the first time. He'd already been in prison earlier, two years in Philippi. Now he's in Rome, it seems certain. And he doesn't know when things are going to come to an end or how it's going to work out. Indeed, he says, some are trying to stir up trouble for him out there while he is unable to defend himself. And his response is this. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. <laughs> That's, that is intention. That's determination. It's not just stoicism, and it's more than courage. It's, it's based on Paul's beliefs, the belief that God is good all the time, the belief that God has been totally reliable in the past and will be in the future, and the belief that God is in control. Blakelock notes, Paul knew that to those who love God, who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. And he says this. This is a slightly longer quote, but uh, I hope you can stay with me. From Blakelock, joy, he says. Peril lay frustrated behind him. Peril in the raging temple court. Peril before the sinister Sanhedrin. Perils of all kinds I leave out. It was obvious to Paul that God was in complete control. He waited in some excitement to see what the outcome of his imprisonment would be. Meanwhile, he was preaching the gospel where he had longed to preach it, in the empire's capital. He was bound in body, but triumphantly free in soul. Christ is victorious in his weakness. In God's purposes, Paul was challenged to write his most triumphant and joyous pages from captivity. What has faith and willingness to rise to such occasion not produced in finest fruitfulness? The Philippian letter has comforted the prison, prisoners of Jesus Christ in all ages. It lived in the concentration camps of Europe. It is remembered by lost sufferers for God who live under the shadow of persecution today. And so I uh, end with uh, a rather different conclusion. might sound a bit funny, but I want to stress that joy isn't everything. I've spent a whole lot of time saying we should be rejoicing, but it's not everything. Um, I think now might be the time to um, play a um, little DVD. It's a song that I found, I think it's even in the Baptist hymn book, but this is to a, a modern tune, and I really like it. My goal is God himself, not joy nor peace, not even blessing, but himself, my God. Let's just hear that. Sing God. 
for all he urges us to rejoice, Paul wasn't after joy as an end in itself. I don't think it works that way. Rejoicing was to be practised as part of his wholehearted commitment to following Christ and indeed through sharing Christ's sufferings. So let me just read this last piece from Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we've uh, spoken and um, thought about things that are quite wonderful and uh, also in some ways quite difficult. Uh, But you know our hearts, you know our weaknesses, uh, you know what we need and you are the goal of our lives in whom may be found joy and peace. We pray that in this coming year, you will help us to be different from the inside out through the gift of your Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, in particularly joy. Help us to honour you by looking at things from your point of view as well as we can. In Jesus' name, amen.